So spiritual warfare, by the way, is not casting out demons for us, especially today. It's not a bunch of chanting and exorcisms. Spiritual warfare is putting on the means of grace, overcoming sin, and refuting false doctrine. That's spiritual warfare. And that's what we're called to engage in. Well, Charles Spurgeon, I'm reading a biography on him by now, uh, right now. And uh, the biographer wrote, As Spurgeon climbed the steps of his pulpit, he had steps around his pulpit, as he took each step, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. In other words, Spurgeon knew how desperately he needed the enlightenment and the illumination of the Spirit of God if he was to accurately understand and eloquently and clearly proclaim the Word of God. And the same is true for us. So let's go to our God in prayer now and ask for the Spirit's work in our minds as we prepare to hear from Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word and how it's so filled with rich truth for us. Even this morning, we've already had a feast for our souls laid out before us and there's more to come. And we are staggered as we consider Your greatness. And now as we open Your Word, we pray for help. Help us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Help us to understand the truth. Please, O God, give us grace. Illumine our mental faculties. Open the spiritual eyes of our heart, so that with the eye of faith we may behold wonderful things in Your law. May it be as Jesus did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that You would open our minds that we might understand the Scriptures. Help us, Lord, to know what the text says, to know what the text means by what it says, and to understand how it applies to our life, that we might, in grace and the Spirit's power, live it out for Your glory. All of these things we pray to that end. Amen. Well, we are returning this morning to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 as we continue to work through the Word of God verse by verse together. And for today, we are finally, hopefully, going to finish our study of the first four verses, which form the salutation. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This short little letter obviously deals with pastoral ministry. That will become clear in the next several weeks as we work through verses 5 through 9 together. That's why it's often referred to as one of the pastoral epistles along with 1st and 2nd Timothy. But it deals with more than just pastoral ministry. It applies to more than pastors. It also deals with the organization, conduct, and doctrine of a healthy evangelistic church. That's the theme. The organization, conduct, and the doctrine of a healthy evangelistic church. So this doesn't apply exclusively to pastors. It applies to the church. It applies to every believer. This epistle has many truths, practical truths, to teach each and every one of us this morning. And Paul begins the letter at the very start, at the very outset, by reminding Titus of what it is that makes for effective ministry. What it is that makes an effective minister. Let's read the first four verses one more time. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, 
in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. By now it's obvious that the theme here is effective ministry. Effective ministry. This passage serves as Paul's opening greeting, his salutation to Titus, much of which consists of Paul's description of himself and his ministry. A description of his own ministry. And therefore, he becomes a model for us. A model for Titus, a model for the believers at Crete, and a model for all believers of all time, including you and me. Because, as we've noted before, all believers are called to ministry. All Christians are called to service. The idea that only the pastor is the minister is, as we've seen, thoroughly unbiblical. It's not taught anywhere in Scripture. To the contrary, we've considered last week several passages of Scripture that teach that all Christians are called to ministry and that all believers are priests before God. That's the biblical model. Every member of ministry, the priesthood of all believers. So we're all called to ministry. And of course, all of us should desire to be effective in our ministry. All of us should desire to be faithful in our service. None of us want to be failures in our service to the Lord. None of us want to waste our lives. We want our service to be effectual. And in order for that to be the case, in order to be effective in ministry, you must have the right priorities, the right commitments. And we know we've been looking at them in this letter. As Paul defines his own ministry, he outlines for us the priorities of any effective minister. Any effective minister. There are a total of six of them here. We've looked at the first three already, and for this morning, Lord willing, we'll look at the final three. But by way of review, the first priority of an effective minister that we saw was the right master. The right master. Verse 1, Paul a bondservant of God. He begins by affirming his humble position as a slave, a doulos, one under authority, one completely sold out for God under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as I've said, we must all see ourselves in that light. We must all be totally yielded to Him. The starting point of effective ministry is total consecration to God, the right Master. And the rest of them flow from that. If you begin there, if you are totally sold out for God and His kingdom and His glory and His purpose, then the rest of them fall into place. So number one, the right Master. The second one was the right ministry. The right ministry. Verse 1 again, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was not only a humble slave, he was an authoritative apostle. That was his ministry, and he was committed to it. He knew why he was in the world. He knew what God had called him to do. He knew the ministry God had for him. And in the same way, all effective ministers know the ministry that God has called them to. 
They know their gifts, they know their ministries, they know their callings, and they are committed to fulfilling those ministries. The right ministry. That logically brought us to the third priority of an effective minister, namely the right mission. The right mission. Not only do we need to understand our ministry as messengers and witnesses for Christ, but we must understand the purpose of our ministry, the mission. That's summed up in the rest of verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. I told you, Paul's ministry purpose was twofold. Salvation, sanctification. Evangelization, edification. And if you want to throw one more in there, glorification, to glorify God. Everything Paul did in the ministry was for the salvation and sanctification of God's elect. To bring non-believers to Christ and to bring believers to greater Christ-likeness. And that is the mission of any effective pastor, any effective minister, and any effective local church. That must be our mission. Now all of that brought us last week to number four. We started to look at this one and we'll finish it up this morning. And that is the right message. The right message. As God's slaves, having the right master, the right ministry, and the right mission, we now need to know the message by which we carry out that mission. You have to start with the right mission. Your mission is to bring people to salvation and sanctification. How do you do that? You have the right message. And what is the message that saves and sanctifies? What is the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness? Paul answers that in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word. As I said last week, Paul's message was the Gospel of Christ, the covenant of grace, the Word of God. And that message, the beginning of verse 2 says, centers on and in the hope of eternal life. I told you last time, eternal life is both a quantity of life and a quality of life. It's both a kind of life and a duration of life. It is the life of God within the soul. It is fellowship with the Lord. It is communion with God. It is to be in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, a communion that believers will enjoy forever. And this eternal life is our hope. We possess it now in one sense, but not yet in its fullest sense. It is the hope of eternal life. It's something we enjoy now, and yet something future. Something hoped in. Something promised. Something guaranteed. Something we look forward to with confident anticipation and expectation and certainty. It is both a present reality and yet our future hope. Ultimately, it is the fullness of our salvation which takes place at the second coming, at our resurrection, our glorification, when we receive new bodies in a new heaven and a new earth in eternal glory. That is the fullness of eternal life. 
And that's what Paul emphasizes here. And this hope of eternal life is that which God, who cannot lie, promised, verse 2 adds. Listen, believer. Your hope of eternal life is absolutely certain and sure and steadfast because of who promised it. God. The God who cannot lie. A God who only speaks the truth. A God of immutable and changeable truth. And therefore, you can know with certainty that you have the hope of eternal life. But it's not only certain because of who promised it, but also because of when it was promised. God promised it, the end of verse 2 says, long ages ago. Or as the Greek could literally be rendered, before times eternal. Before the foundation of the world. Before the creation of the universe, God promised eternal life. That begged the question we considered last week. To whom? To who did He make the promise? Surely not to us. We weren't there. You weren't there before the world was created, were you? Of course not. Who did the promise come to? Who was it made to? I told you last week, He promised it to Christ and to us in Christ. He promised it to Christ and to us in Christ. He promised it to Christ covenantally and representatively in the covenant of grace, God's eternal covenant. I told you last time that there are only two overarching primary covenants throughout redemptive history. Only two. All other covenants are subservient to these two. There's the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works was made in the garden with Adam, recorded in Genesis chapter 2. Hosea 6-7 affirms that it was a covenant. Adam transgressed the covenant, Hosea 6-7 says. It was a covenant between God and Adam. In that covenant, Adam represented the whole human race before God so that when he broke the covenant by eating off the tree, when he sinned, we sinned in him. We sinned in him. He condemned the whole human race by his one transgression of eating off the tree. By the transgression of the one, the many died. In Adam, all die. That's the covenant of works. On the other hand, there's the covenant of grace, which was made in eternity past within the council of the Trinity and specifically between the Father and the Son. The Father promised the people to the Son and promised eternal life to that people predicated on the obedience and sufferings of the Son. And the Son then says, Yes, Father, I will go. I will go be their mediator, their redeemer, their savior. He then went, he obeyed, he suffered, he died in our place, and he purchased that eternal life. So we are represented by Christ in the covenant of grace. That's Paul's message. That's what Paul refers to here by the hope of eternal life. And now going to verse 3, Paul further elaborates on this message, and that's where we pick up for this morning. This hope of eternal life was promised before times eternal, verse 3, but at the proper time manifested. Promised before time, manifested in time. The word manifested translates a form of the Greek word phanirao. Phanirao, it's a word we saw several times in our study of 1 John. 
The word means to manifest, make clear, make visible, make known. Here it means to reveal. To reveal. Though the gospel, the covenant of grace, the promise of eternal life was made before time, yet it was revealed to man in time. Even at the proper time. Proper time translates the Greek word kairos. Kairos. It's not the normal word you might think, chronos, which refers to chronological time. Kairos refers to an opportune time, an opportunity, a season. It could even be translated the right time, the suitable time, the fitting time. It could also read his own time. The word idios, meaning his own, is absent from the Nasby translation, but it is in the Greek. The Nasby leaves it untranslated. So it could say his own time. Paul is saying God's eternal plan and purpose of redemption was revealed to man at the right time, according to his own time, at the very moment that God chose to reveal it. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right on schedule. Galatians 4.4 4 says, It was in the fullness of the time. In the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son. At the very moment in human history that God determined, Christ came and the Gospel was revealed and became fully manifested. Promised in eternity, but made known to man in time. The gospel is no afterthought, is it? It's all perfectly timed by God. He planned it in eternity. He revealed it at the right time. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel of God is that which God promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son. In other words, the gospel of God, the gospel from God, the true gospel, was promised beforehand, before it became a historical reality, before the incarnation of Christ, before His sinless life, before His substitutionary death, His resurrection, before all of that, God had already promised the great message of redemption, this hope of eternal life. And how did He promise it? Where did He promise it? Romans 1-2 says, through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is, in the Old Testament. It's the only Scriptures Paul had in the Old Testament. It's an amazing thing to think about. You might hear some Christians say, I'm a New Testament Christian. I just like the New Testament. You can't do that without unhitching the foundation of your faith. Because the Gospel is all throughout the Old Testament. You know how many Gospels there are, by the way? There's a group of hyper-dispensationalists that will tell you there's a lot of Gospels. There's one Gospel. One Gospel. And to find the first promise of the Gospel, you, that is the first revelation of the covenant of grace, you have to go all the way back to the garden. Back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Right after the fall of man, right as a God is pronouncing curses upon all involved in the first sin, right there, the curse pronounced upon the serpent becomes the first gospel 
promise. The first revelation of the gospel. We call it the proto-euangelion. There, in Genesis 3.15, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be bruised. That took place at the cross. When Jesus died, and He had His heel bruised, the crucifixion, that's a minor blow, but then He crushed the serpent's head at the resurrection, delivering a fatal blow. Jesus fulfilled the proto-euangelion, Genesis 3.15. That's amazing, isn't it? There's the Gospel in seed form, in sipient form, right in the very beginning of the Bible. Then you get to Abraham, and there's a further revelation of this gospel. In fact, if you're writing down verses, this is a good one. Galatians 3.8 says, Galatians 3.8, The Scripture, that is personifying the Scripture, God speaking through the Scripture, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Did you hear that? The Old Testament preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. That's a quote from Genesis 12.3, reiterated again in Genesis 22.18. Paul says the Old Testament preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And this is the gospel. All the nations will be blessed in you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in seed form, incipient form. That one day, one of Abraham's descendants, his seed, namely Christ, would bless a people from every nation with salvation in him. There's the gospel. And Paul, or Paul, Abraham, was saved by believing that very gospel. Then this promise was reiterated again to Isaac and Jacob. Then you get to David and God promises David that he'd sit one of his descendants on the throne forever and that his son would build a house for God. We know that Solomon was the immediate fulfillment of that. He built the physical house, the temple. But Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. He's the king that builds a spiritual house for God, namely the church whose house we are, Hebrews 3, 6 says. Then you come to Isaiah 53, and you have one of the clearest gospel presentations in the whole Bible, and it's in the Old Testament. The suffering servant of the Lord would be bruised for our iniquities and crushed for our transgressions. He would be a bleeding substitute who would bear the wrath of God, thus delivering His people from certain judgment. That is the gospel according to Isaiah, according to the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus Himself preached the same gospel. The good news that the kingdom of God had come near, and that all who repent and believe get into that kingdom, into the realm of salvation. Then He goes and He lives out the historical elements of the gospel in His death and burial and resurrection and ascension. Afterwards, His apostles go and they preach the Gospel and record that Gospel for us on the pages of the New Testament. It is now recorded for us in its complete form there. It is, as Romans 16, 25, and 26 says, 
the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. It is the mystery. The message planned before the foundation of the world revealed progressively throughout history and now fully manifested at the proper time. You could think of the gospel like a seed. It was created in eternity past in the mind of God. It's first planted in human history in the garden in Genesis 3.15. And then it begins throughout the progressive nature of the Old Testament. It begins to blossom. Finally, you come to the New Testament and it's become a fully grown flower. It comes to full revelatory fruition. We now possess the full manifestation and revelation of the gospel, the covenant of grace. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul refers to the covenants of promise, plural. Covenants of promise. There are many covenants of promise throughout the Bible. There's the Noahic covenant, which centered on the promise to never flood the earth again. There was the Abrahamic covenant, including the promises of many descendants, the land of Canaan, an ultimate salvific blessing through Abraham's seed to the nations. Then you get to the Davidic covenant, God's promise to sit David's son on the throne forever. And then there's the new covenant, the new covenant which was ratified by the blood of Christ on the cross. We often speak of the new covenant in His blood. That was predicted in Old Testament passages like Jeremiah 31. These are all great covenants of promise. And all of them are fulfilled in Christ. All of them are based upon and flow out of the eternal covenant of grace. Why did God promise to never flood the earth again? Because He had made a covenant from eternity to save the people through the seed of the woman. He kills everybody, there's no seed of the woman. The covenant fails. Who's the son of David? The seed of the woman. The son of the covenant. Who's the son of Abraham that blesses the nations? Christ. Who's the one who ratifies the new covenant? Christ. It's all based upon this eternal covenant transaction. <clears throat> all of which comes to full and final manifestation and revelation in the new covenant, the New Testament. It has now been fully revealed. Now, how, how has it been revealed? Where has it been revealed? Verse 3 says, Even His Word... It is revealed by, through, and in the Word of God. That was Paul's message. The Word of God. That's the message of any faithful preacher and any faithful minister. What you need to realize is that there is a difference between, by the way, there's a difference between first generation prophetic preachers, such as the apostles, and second generation explanatory preachers. We don't receive direct revelation from God. We have complete, passed-on revelation from God in the Scripture. The job of a preacher is to expound the Scripture. Verse by verse, word by word. And the job of every Christian and every minister is to speak that word. 
This message would include the reality of God's holiness, His justice, His hatred of sin. It would include the reality of human depravity that all men are guilty of, corrupted by, and condemned in sin. It would include the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is the sum and substance of the Gospel, His virgin birth, full deity, true humanity, saving sufficiency, His sinless life in which He fulfilled the moral demands of God's law for us, His substitutionary death in which He paid the penalty of the law for us, bearing the wrath that we deserve, His resurrection which confirms His deity and the sufficiency of His atonement, His ascension which affirms His lordship and sovereignty and victory, all of which demands a response of submission to Him. It includes then a call to the unconverted to repent and believe the gospel, to turn from sin and turn to Christ, to submit to Him as Lord and trust Him as Savior, which leads to the hope of eternal life and eternal glory. All of which, of course, is rooted in God's eternal covenant of grace. The promise of life in Christ before times eternal. That was Paul's message. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you need to see the reality of your condition before God. You're guilty of sin. You're guilty before God. You're headed for eternal burnings in hell. You need to run from your sin and run to Christ that He might deliver you from such a terrible fate, such a horrific eternity. If you're a believer, this message should bring you great joy, great encouragement, great hope. It should purify you and spur you on to sanctification. Because you see, this this message, the Gospel, is not only the message that leads unbelievers to salvation, but believers to sanctification. The believer never graduates from his need for the Gospel. Do you know that? Christianity is not about being saved by the Gospel and then we go on to deeper things. No, the deeper things are the Gospel. It's going deeper in the Gospel. We need the Gospel. We should delight in this message. We should meditate on this message. And we should commit to making this message our own. Which brings us then to the fifth priority. The right method. The right method. We know our message, the Gospel. We know where it is revealed in His Word. But how does the message go on? How does the Word go forth? Paul tells us again in verse 3, "...in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior." The message goes out in the proclamation. This promise of eternal life which was made from eternity and manifested and revealed in time goes forth specifically through the proclamation of Paul and the apostles and even today through ordinary believers like you and I. This message goes out in the proclamation. That was Paul's method. Proclamation. It's a form of the Greek noun kerugma. Kerugma, kerugma, 
is derived from the Greek verb keruso. Keruso refers to the act of preaching or heralding, proclaiming. Kerugma refers to the message that is proclaimed. Then you have the noun kerux, which refers to the preacher. The kerux, preacher, keruso preaches the kerugma, the message, the proclamation. The word means to proclaim as a herald. It refers to a public announcement, public proclamation. It is the word that would be used of a town herald who would be sent into the town square by the king and he would lift up his voice and cry out, Hear ye, hear ye! And with the king's very authority, he would proclaim the message of the king. This word refers to public proclamation. And here it refers to the public announcement of the gospel. That was Paul's method. He was an open-air preacher. A public proclaimer. He would preach the gospel boldly, openly, and publicly. In the synagogues, in the marketplaces, in the Areopagus, anywhere else people would gather, Paul would engage in the public, open proclamation of the gospel. By the way, not only was Paul a herald, or an open-air preacher, but so were the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets. The word is used in Matthew 12.41 in reference to the preaching of Jonah. Jonah didn't go to Nineveh and earn the right to be heard. He didn't go and seek to build friendships and blend in with a culture and hope the Ninevites asked him about his faith. No. Jonah went, he lifted up his voice, and he publicly and authoritatively declared the message of the king. Maybe reluctantly, but he did it. He proclaimed the message of God with God's authority as a preacher in the open air. Jesus, by the way, was also an open air preacher, as was his forerunner John the Baptist. Mark 1.14 says that Jesus came into Galilee preaching, same word, heralding, the gospel of God. Mark 1.4 says John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, same word, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Mark 1 verse 3, quoting from the Old Testament, speaks of John as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's like a town crier, lifting up his voice, declaring the gospel of God publicly. I love what Acts 2.14 says about Peter on the day of Pentecost. Certainly you're familiar with the scene. The Spirit of God comes on the day of Pentecost. The believers are unable to speak with new tongues, new languages. And the crowds are drawn and bewildered and conclude they must all be drunk at 9 a.m. And verse 14 says, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice. Raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And then he preaches the gospel and 3,000 people were saved that day. Peter didn't engage in quote-unquote friendship evangelism. He didn't seek to win his hearers by his hip personality. He wasn't the guy with the skinny jeans on and the Starbucks. 
He wasn't the cool guy. He was the prophet on the sidewalk proclaiming the good news. He raised his voice. He opened his mouth. He proclaimed the message. As 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, same word, kerugma, to save those who believe. God saves sinners through the public proclamation of the Gospel. Simple enough. Now there are some today who see people like me on the street corners open air preaching and they say that's, that's not effective. That's not effective. We need to win them to us before they, we win them to Jesus, they say. We need to build a friendship with Him first. Now let me be very clear. You should have friends, right? Jesus had friends. He was a friend of sinners. He ate, and ate with Him. You should have friends and you should preach the Gospel to your friends. But friendship is not a prerequisite for effective evangelism. You got that one? Friendship is not a prerequisite for effective gospel proclamation. The gospel itself is sufficient. That is why the Old Testament prophets were open-air preachers. Jesus was an open-air preacher. John the Baptist, Paul the Apostles. Whitfield, Spurgeon, and many other great men throughout church history have been open-air preachers because open-air preaching is a biblical and effective method of evangelism. People say times change. That's true, but people don't change. The Gospel doesn't change. God's method of saving sinners doesn't change. So Paul was committed to that method. So you know that old adage? Surely you've heard it. Preach the Gospel at all times. If necessary, use words, that's unbiblical. That's unbiblical. You can't preach the Gospel without words. Even the word evangelism comes from the Greek verb euangelizo, and it means to declare or announce good news. You can't do that without words. We just saw in Ephesians 6.19 in our Scripture reading, Paul said, pray that I might have the utterance of my mouth so I can open my mouth. You can't preach the Gospel without opening your mouth and speaking it forth. So I prefer the quote, preach the Gospel at all times. If necessary, use an amp. If necessary, use an amp. Preach the Gospel, use words, because they are absolutely necessary. So certainly this justifies the method of open-air preaching. But more generally, it demands that every believer open his or her mouth and speak forth the good news. Not everyone is called to be an open-air preacher. That's clear from Scripture. But every believer is called to be a witness for Christ. To publish the good news with his mouth. Evangelism demands words. Either the spoken word or the written word, such as gospel tracts. But we must use words. We must open our mouth. Some people say, I'll live the Gospel. You can't do that. The Gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You can't live the Gospel. You're called to proclaim the Gospel. Jesus lived it. You proclaim it. You proclaim it. So Paul knew that. Therefore, he was committed to proclamation. His message went forth and was revealed, he says, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. 
Paul had been given the gospel message as a trust, as a divine treasure entrusted to him. And as a steward and slave of God, he was expected to be found faithful to that message. It was entrusted to him according to the commandment of God our Savior. God decreed from eternity past that Paul would be a preacher, and then God commanded Paul personally in time to be a preacher. He was a preacher by the commandment of God. And in the same way, God has commanded all believers of all time to open their mouths and speak forth the Gospel. That all who have been called out of darkness into the light of His kingdom are to proclaim His excellencies. We must open our mouth. Notice the very God who gave this commandment. Notice how Paul defines Him here. It's according to the commandment of God our Savior. God is our Savior. He's a saving God by nature. The Father is our Savior. He's the one that planned redemption in His mind from eternity. The Son is our Savior. He's the one that came forth to die for us on the cross. The Holy Spirit is our Savior. He's the one that applies that work of salvation to us in time. It's a Trinitarian work of salvation. God is Savior. And since God is Savior, He desires men to be saved. And since He desires men to be saved, He commands us to go and preach the message by which they may be saved. And since that's the case, we must open our mouths and proclaim the Gospel because it is commanded by God who is Savior. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of Christ. There is no salvation without words. The promise of eternal life goes forth in the proclamation through the Word being proclaimed. And when the Word is proclaimed, eternal life goes forth. So that is the right method. Proclamation. Proclamation. But quickly, one more. We're going to have to work fast now. Number six. The right men. The right men. A final priority of an effective minister is a commitment to the right men. Look at verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. This letter is addressed to Titus. Paul was the author. Titus was the recipient. And we've talked about that. We know who Titus was. We talked about it a couple of months ago in the introductory message I preached. His mother was a Jew. His father was a Greek. He was a very dear friend of Paul's, a very close and well-trusted, beloved companion. Here Paul refers to him as my true child in a common faith. That is to say, he was a spiritual son to Paul. It's even possible that he was directly converted under Paul's ministry, perhaps indicated by the words, true child. The word true there means genuine, legitimate. Paul was a genuine, legit, or Titus was a genuine, legitimate, and true believer, a true convert, a true son to Paul. But not a physical son, a spiritual son, as indicated by the words, in a common faith. Paul was his spiritual father and mentor. Titus, like Timothy, was his 
spiritual son. And he was such a well-trained and well-trusted associate of Paul's that Paul left him in Crete and charged him with the task of organizing the churches and finishing the work. That tells us about the integrity of Titus. Paul knew that he couldn't do ministry alone. He knew that he couldn't do it by himself. He knew that if he was to be effective, he had to pass the truth on to future generations. He had to reproduce himself in others, extend himself through others. He needed to multiply his ministerial impact. He needed to invest in the right men. He did this with Titus. He did it with Timothy. And if you read his epistles, typically when you get to the end of them, you find a long list of names of those who Paul invested in. Paul's team. Paul's network. Paul was committed to the right men. In this, he was imitating Jesus Himself, who chose twelve men, poured Himself into those men, and then sent them out to do the same. Paul followed that same model of our Lord's ministry. And he also encouraged Timothy to also embrace this principle of multiplication, this principle of reproduction. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul exhorted Timothy, and thus all ministry leaders of all time, with these words, "...the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." Notice the process of transmission. Timothy heard things from Paul. He was to pass those things to other faithful men who would then go and pass those things to other men. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others. And the process goes on until our Lord returns. Now this obviously applies specifically and especially to pastors. But in a more general way, it applies to all believers. All believers must be disciples that make and multiply disciples. All believers are to have discipling relationships and reproduce ourselves in others who will then go and reproduce themselves in others. I've told you about my method of doing this. Discipleship groups. Discipleship groups, I meet with three or four men for six months to a year. We work through fundamentals of the faith together. Maybe read a couple of other books together. And then those men go and start their own group with a few other men. And then those men eventually go and do likewise. It creates a culture of discipleship. But regardless of the exact method you use, this principle of multiplication is a priority on the list of every effective minister and every faithful disciple. We all are to be disciple makers. We should all have those in our lives who are our mentors, and we should have those in our life for whom we serve as mentors. Is that your commitment? Are you reproducing yourself in others? Do you have believers in your life that you're mentoring, that you're meeting with regularly, studying the Word, teaching them, modeling godliness for them, training them for ministry, nurturing spiritual growth? helping them follow Christ. A faithful minister is committed to the right men or women 
if you're a woman. This applies to both men and women. All believers are to be disciple-makers. We could say that you must have a commitment to the right people. God's people. And what kind of people do you want to invest in? Should we just invest in everybody? Obviously we can't do that. We have limited time. So how do we, how do we choose who to invest in? You ready for this one? Here's who you're looking for. Fat people. Got it? Fat people. Faithful, available, teachable. If they're not faithful, available, and teachable, then in all likelihood you're going to waste your time. It doesn't mean you shouldn't minister to them at all. It doesn't mean you shouldn't share the gospel with them. It means you should not spend a majority of your time invested in them. Now if that sounds strange to you, just remember Jesus didn't invest in everyone. Right? John 2 says, He knew what was in them, so He was not entrusting Himself to them. Speaking of a group of Jews who had believed in His name, but were not committed. He knew they weren't committed, so He wasn't invested. He wasn't invested. Even out of the larger group of His followers, Jesus specifically invested in 12 of them. And that is a model of ministry that any effective minister ought to follow. We must be committed to the right men. Finally, Paul closes this greeting with a benediction. Benediction of prayer of blessing for Titus. And he teaches us here that one evidence of commitment to God's people is prayer for God's people. Look at verse 4 again. To Titus... My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. There's the prayer. He prays for Titus to receive grace and peace from God and Christ. Grace, the Greek word charis, it means undeserved favor and kindness, the very kindness that God bestows on unworthy sinners. The whole of our salvation is grace. The entirety of our Christian walk is grace. We're chosen by grace, justified by grace, sanctified by grace, preserved by grace. One day we'll be glorified by grace. It's all of grace. Sola gratia. But he's not praying for Titus to receive saving grace. He had already received that once and for all at conversion. He's praying for Titus to receive sanctifying, sustaining, strengthening grace. The grace he would need to grow in grace and the grace he would need to fulfill his ministry on the island of Crete. Then there's peace. Peace. Peace could either be objective or subjective. Objectively, peace refers to relational peace with God. Before salvation, we're God's enemies. We're angry with God. God's angry with us. We hate God. But at salvation, the enmity of our heart is removed. We now love God. His wrath is satisfied in Christ. We are the friends of God. But Paul's not praying for that for Timothy, Titus. Titus received that already. We have once and for all peace with God at the moment of salvation. Paul's not praying for Titus to have peace with God, but the peace of God. The peace that surpasses all comprehension and guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. A sense of well-being calmness in all situations. 
And this grace and peace comes from, as the source, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. If you're a Christian, God is your Father and Christ is your Savior. God is the Father. He's the Father of Christ within the Trinity and He's our Father in Christ by adoption. And Jesus is referred to here as Savior. That's interesting, isn't it? Because who is called Savior in verse 3? God. Verse 3, God is Savior. Verse 4, Christ is Savior. Titus 2.13 refers to Christ as both God and Savior. This further proves the deity of Christ, doesn't it? The Father is our Savior. The Son is our Savior. And we don't have two Saviors, we have one Savior. Because these two persons along with the Holy Spirit, constitute one God. The source of grace and peace is the triune God, apart from which there is no grace and no peace. And as Paul prays this for Titus, so we should pray this for other believers as well, for ourselves and for others. There are some here even this morning who are suffering trials. Perhaps there are some this morning who are experiencing depression, loss of loved ones, physical ailments, pain, suffering, loneliness. And so we should pray for one another. That God would lavish His grace and His peace upon us. The very grace and the very peace that we need to persevere with joy and contentment and faithfulness until the end. So if you don't know what to request in prayer for other believers, here's a good place to start. Make Paul's prayer your own. Pray for grace and peace. Well, we finally come to the end. After four long weeks, those are the priorities of an effective minister. The right master must be committed to God as our master and Lord. The right ministry We must be committed to the gifts and calling that God has laid upon our life as His witnesses and servants. The right mission, salvation and sanctification, evangelization and edification. The right message, that is the gospel, the covenant of grace, the word of God. And finally, the right men, faithful, available and teachable. Men and women through whom we can reproduce ourselves and multiply our ministry impact in discipling relationships. And to fulfill all of this, we need grace and peace from God in Christ our Savior. Are these your commitments? Are these your priorities? If so, heaven only knows the impact that your life and your ministry will have for His kingdom and His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You for the fact that we don't have to wander around in the darkness wondering what it takes to be faithful and effective. We don't have to wonder why we're in the world for what You've called us to do. Your Word makes it so clear. You've called us to be ministers of God, slaves of God, messengers of Christ, on mission with Him, seeking the advancement of His kingdom, proclaiming His message with His method, investing in Your people for Your glory.
Lord, help us to do these things. Make us all faithful, we pray. Amen.